Okay. So for many in your family, we remember and we give thanks. Okay. Others. Yes. So for Murray, who was get one of the ones that was gassed during World War I, we remember and give thanks. Yes. And we remember him and give thanks for him, too. Yes. My father, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Case Rogers, uh, Prisoner to death in East or in the Philippines and was killed on, I think, the first terrorist ship. Of course, we were by American submarines. Which is a double tragedy. Yeah. So we remember and we give thanks. Are there others? In the Pacific. We remember and give thanks. We remember and give thanks. Okay. At Okinawa. We remember and give thanks. Okay. Normandy invasion. We remember and give thanks. remember. My father, Chief Warrant Officer Leon Charles Snell, was shot in uh, by an airplane near Valeria, serving as a MacArthur. He was in the Air Force, but he was uh, doing a position with sub Japanese submarines down there. Yeah. That's one area where we do things when we're uh, doing surveys. Yeah. yeah, not all died actually at the time, but mm -hmm. years later. Okay. Are there others? These are the people whose shoulders we stand on and who's uh, sacrificed immensely for us. Let's add to that any prayer concerns that you might have or joys. Okay. Mm. Your cousin's name was? Gloria, Gloria who, di who died this week, Thursday. Okay. This is our prayer, O Lord. Had a stroke and then died about 24 hours later. Okay. This is our prayer, O Lord. His funerals in uh, Burnett at Thursday, three, three o'clock, I think. Yeah. A lot of people know that the Clinton family. Yes. This is our prayer, O Lord. This is our prayer, O oh Lord. 
That has not gone away for a lot of people. This is our prayer, O oh Lord. Prayer for you. This is our prayer, O oh Lord. I forgot to do it. Uh, first grandfather on my side of the family was born yesterday. All right. She doesn't have a name, but she's my niece. <laughs> <laughs> the name will come. <laughs> There's only one you say said that. You know, the old, the old tradition was you did not name the child until the <laughs> baptism. That's why the pastor said, What name is given this child? And the whole room is going. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you want to make sure they live that long. That was what it was about. Yeah. Yeah. Other prayer concerns, joys? If not, let us uh, join together then in reciting the prayer that Jesus gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As our ushers come forward, let us dedicate ourselves and our gifts to God. fun for y'all do that together yeah. <laughs> quite the husband wife duo all right we are doing what the resurrection narratives the resurrection stories during the season of easter you remember where we started which gospel mark uh mark uh not mark as it's in your bible today but mark uh as it originally was the short ending of mark which really ends 
uh, at the empty tomb with the, the women being told by the angels to go proclaim the message. And Mark says they didn't because they were terrified. Then we move to, jo- uh, to Matthew, and Matthew's uh, stressing the supernatural aspect with earthquake and the darkening of the sky. Then we move to Luke, who stresses the physicality. We have the walk to Emmaus story there. And then last week, we turned to John with a wonderful story, which was Mary Magdalene. That's right. Uh, not Mary Magdalene of pop culture, but Mary Magdalene of the New Testament, who's quite a different figure. So today what we're going to do is we're going to move from the empty tomb and Mary Magdalene, and we're going to do uh, the rest of John, which actually has three more resurrection appearances. John has m- as many as the other Gospels combined. We're going to have a story of uh, Jesus appearing to the disciples in Jerusalem inside a locked room. Now, Luke has them appear in the room, but Luke just doesn't specifically mention that the room was locked. But it seems like a very similar story. What's interesting about this story is somebody came late to the party, a guy named Thomas, and he simply wasn't there, so he missed that. One week later, we're told the disciples are again in that room in Jerusalem, and this time Thomas is there. And we have what's called the the famous Doubting Thomas story. And then we move north to Galilee. This is where Jesus has them cast their nets over to the side. And there's the catching of all the fish. And we're given a number of those, which nobody has any idea what that number means. But then we have a a conversation with Peter. So we're going to begin in Jerusalem. uh, And John sets it up. When it was evening of that day, well, what day was that? Well, the first day of the week, which would be? Sunday, which is Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Day. So this is the same day as the empty tomb. This is the same day as the Mary Magdalene story. We simply have moved into the evening. The doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked. Luke has a parallel story where they're they're shut. He doesn't specifically mention they're locked. John wants us to understand they're, in fact, locked, which means normally access would not be allowed for fear of the Jews. Now, <coughs> this is one of those, you know, John has the, this whole business in it, the sort of the anti-Jewish thing. Just remember in Greek, Eudoi has two translations. One is the Jews, and the other is the Judeans, the people who live in Judea. And probably 95% of the time, that's what John means. So here, for fear of the Judeans, the Jewish people that they feel some tension with. Jesus came and stood among them and said, a uh, very famous phrase in Hebrew, what is it? Shalom in Arabic. Salam. Salam Aleichem, you know. Uh, very, very famous greeting. Uh, after this, he said to them, he, sh- uh, he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Because, why? Yeah, prove that he had been hurt. Prove he had been crucified. So the whole point of this is to show that this is not, remember in Luke, it's not a ghost, it's not a specter, it's not a spirit, it's not a vision. What is it? It's a body. It's a human body. It's a resurrected body. We have that emphasis in Luke, and we have that emphasis in John. Now, again, there's many parallels between Luke and John. There's a lot of guesswork here that Luke, when he wrote this gospel, may have had access to one of the early versions of John. We know that John went through several versions, at least two, because we have two endings in John. We've got John without chapter 21, and we've got John with chapter 21. And we'll look at that here in a little bit. Uh, 
But John wants to emphasize the risen Lord is the same as the earthly Jesus. We're going to have several things about that. But with John, it has a little bit more of an edge than with, uh, with, uh, with Luke. You remember in the beginning of the John, we have these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word what? Became flesh. It's a major, major emphasis in John, the physicality of Jesus. Now, there's a reason for that. John seems particularly sensitive to what is called docetic. Is that a word you're familiar with from the Greek dokio? Uh, it means that which seems or appears, but is not really. And there was this belief that came up pretty darn quickly. Uh, Paul encounters it basically in Corinth back in the 50s. But the idea is that Jesus wasn't really human. And the thinking was something like this. If Jesus is God... And that's part of the, the faith, right? Can God be a human? And some people couldn't go there. So if Jesus is a God, he's not <laughs> human. And so this belief was out there. And it, it, it morphs into something, remember, called Gnosticism? It's one of the key components of Gnosticism. So Jesus appeared or seemed to be human. Now, not long after John, we think that John is written about the year 90, 95, 100, somewhere near, near the close of the first century, the, the opening of the second century, which is about the time that the Gnostic writings begin to appear. Do you remember something called the Nag Hammadi or the Gnostic Gospels? Okay, they were found in over in Egypt. Well, one of them is the second treatise of the great Seth. This is not the only document that has this, but I thought you might actually enjoy this. This is the Jesus who is a God, not mortal. And so he says in this gospel, uh, it was another who drank the gall and the vinegar. Do you remember that part of the story? It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't the Christ. It was Jesus. In this book, Jesus and the Christ are two different beings. It was not I. It was another Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas, who bore the cross on his shoulder. It was another upon whom they placed the crown of thorns. So in this writing, which is comes not long after the Gospel of John, we have an attitude here that, that Jesus, if Jesus was divine, which John's Gospel clearly affirms, John's community clearly believes, he could not have been human. You can't have both. What does the Nicene Creed <coughs> say? You know, fully human, fully divine, becomes the creed of the church. The reason is, is that this was a big issue. In this Gospel, the Christ, who's not the Jesus, has basically took the body of Jesus, used it, and has now left the body of Jesus, is looking down from above, rejoicing in the heights over their terror. I was laughing at their ignorance. Their ignorance is to think that the guy on the cross was the same guy as Christ. Now, that's that book. Chances are that John's dealing with some kind of thing kind of like this. Then we have this, as the Father sent me, so I sent you. By the way, John's already said this in his gospel once before, so this is a theme in John. And we have the disciples being commissioned to continue the work that Jesus himself did. By the way, is there commissioning in Mark? Commissioning in Luke? Commissioning in Matthew? Remember the Great Commission? We'll look at Matthew in just a second because it's an interesting contrast. Each of them have a commissioning. They're all unique, but John stands out. Just to compare John with, with Matthew, for example, Matthew's commissioning, the Great Commissioning. <coughs> Jesus sends them out to make disciples of all nations. Church members, right? 
baptize them, worship service, teach them all that I've taught you. Those are what's interesting is those are all institutional type of acts. And in John, we're going to get the exact opposite. Also, do you remember it's in Matthew, we get you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. And he gets the keys to the kingdom. <coughs> and do you remember in the, the papal seal that the Pope has? There's the mitre hat. And what's crossed right in the front? Keys to the kingdom. So in, in Catholic tradition, this becomes the commissioning of Peter as the first pope. And you continue from there. It's interesting because part of John seems to be anti that thinking. We're going to see that in just a second. And then obviously there was a struggle going on. Also, there was a big struggle with the role of women about this time. John's very pro-women. Some other writings are not. Um, so John, we have the opposite of both. Now we look at verse 22. When he said this, he breathed on them. Remind you of any story in the Bible? Genesis. Yeah, creation story. God breathed into the man the breath of life. God breathed and creation came into being. He said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, receiving the Holy Spirit should bring you to another writing by Luke, Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost story. This is John's Pentecost, okay? But it's different. It's a, a same kind of idea. Now, in the book of Acts, Luke links the Pentecost story to the Joel narrative. Your young men shall dream dreams and have visions. And in, in the, the Joel passage, it says, in the latter days, this is how you know that God's promises will come true God's kingdom will come. All this kind of stuff will happen. Now, unlike Acts, what John's going to do is he's going to link the coming of the Holy Spirit not to the Joel story, not to the coming of the kingdom, which John just does not does not play a role in John, but to the creation story in Genesis. The Lord God formed man in the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living, breathing person. This seems to be the background behind this story. Um, Post-crucifixion, do the disciples need a breath of life? Absolutely do. And so this is a Pentecost birth of the church. It's just an alternative story. Jesus told them they would receive the Holy Spirit when he was glorified. And it's real clear in John. When is Jesus glorified? It's on the cross. What's the, the last thing Jesus says in John? It is finished. It really means it's accomplished. It's done. I did it. The cross is the center part. He now gives them the spirit as an act of creation, literally breathing life into them. Now, this story is one of the several places where you have a story in Luke and a story in John. They're different, but man, they're close. And you, you, you're left asking, is this two different versions of the same story? Both narratives in Luke and in John, Jesus appears suddenly to the disciples in Jerusalem, in a room, with the same greeting, exactly, peace be with you, and Jesus shows him his wounds. Is that striking? Yeah. Again, is it two different stories, or is it two different versions of the same story? We don't know. John 20, verse 23. This is interesting. This is one of the places where John appears to be anti-institutional, very different from Matthew. Jesus says to his disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Does that remind you of anybody? This is in the Gospel of Matthew, what Jesus says to Peter. You know, if you forgive, if you uh, retain. Um, 
very, very similar to the story in Matthew with this big exception. In Matthew, and according to the Catholic tradition, the mainline Christian tradition, this is what makes Peter the Pope. He is given power and authority to grant and to withhold, to forgive or to not. We see that in Matthew 16, I tell you, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom, which becomes the symbol in Rome. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what's interesting in John is that John pointedly does not give this authority to Peter. Who does he give it to? Everybody. The disciples as a group, you know, to bind and to loose, to forgive and to retain, not given to Peter, but to all the disciples. And by the way, in John, it's not the twelve. John's not about the twelve. He has all these names we don't get elsewhere like Nathaniel. Uh, we have other disciples that are significant. But John, here we're told that it's the community as a whole, which means that forgiveness is not an institution. You remember the Middle Ages? What is it the priest had the authority to do? Yeah. Why did you have to go to confession? Why did you have to go to a priest? What's some of the stuff that the Protestant Reformation fought about and fought over? You know, that somebody stood between you and God and had the power to forgive. You know, all going back to Matthew. Now, if you base this on John, you get an entirely different kind of view of this. You know, uh, it's the work of the community as a whole. You remember the priest, the, the Reformation idea of the priesthood of all believers? That's actually from another New Testament book. But this is the idea very much in John. The authority to forgive is not an institutional authority. It's a believer authority. It's one that every one of us have. By the way, in, in the official Methodist service, there's a, uh, you may remember, we don't use it a lot, but there's a part there where there's the prayer confession. Remember that? You've done that in the Methodist church? And then the, the, you have this line, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Who forgives you? God forgives you, but who pronounces it? The community. We have the right to pronounce God's forgiveness to each other. Straight from John. Now, second appearance is to this guy named Thomas, who I think gets an unfair bad rap, just like Mary Magdalene does. So <laughs> I'm going to do a little defending of Thomas today. As one who likes evidence. You know, anybody here like evidence? <laughs> yeah, we like that evidence stuff. Thomas, who was called the twin. Twin with who? We don't know. Um, but there's a gospel of Thomas that also uses this language. And that there it has a particular meaning, but probably not here. It probably means he literally had a twin. Uh, he's one of the 12. He was not with them when Jesus came. Probably overslept that morning, not <laughs> his best day. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. By the way, where have you heard that before? Mary Magdalene. Came to the disciples. Now, in some Gospels, we're pointedly told the disciples did not believe her. In John, we don't hear that. In John, they believe her. Here, we have seen the Lord. Same thing. Thomas said to them, this is a good scientific guy here, good empiricist, unless. One, I see the nails in his hands with my own eyes. Two, put my finger in the mark. You know, you could be tricked. Somebody may use mark, marks a lot there, you know. <laughs> may not be real. I'm going to put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side. What's the point of all this? 
I want to know for a fact that this is the Jesus that we knew before the crucifixion. I don't want it to be any doubt. And so uh, infamous, infamously, this is what makes him the doubting Thomas. Unless I get those three things, I will not believe. One week later, the disciples were again in the house. Thomas was with them. Notice how closely this tracks the first story. Although the doors were shut, we're not told locked, but they're shut. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom Aleichem. Exact same thing he said earlier. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Do those three things sound vaguely familiar? The three things that Thomas said he had to have, he just got. It's like a checklist. One, two, three. Thomas, you need it. You got it. Okay. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Only time in the New Testament do you have this affirmation. Only time in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, this is who Jesus is. Is, is he God? In the Gospel of John, he's clearly God. This questioning and doubting and, and, and needing extra leads to the greatest affirmation of faith that we have in the Gospel of John. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you've seen me. Apparently, he didn't have to stick his hands anywhere. He just, he believed because he'd seen. Blessed, sound familiar? It's a beatitude. We have a bunch of them at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we have others scattered other places. This is the Beatitude. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Can you think of anybody that would fit in that category? Everybody in this room? And John's audience. John is writing about the year 90. These events are happening in the year 60. Two or three generations later, nobody in John's church has seen the risen Lord. If anybody in John's church is going to believe, they're going to have to believe based on not what they've seen, but what? Yeah. One week later. Now, Luke puts everything, his multiple appearance story in one day. Uh, John lets us know that this stretches out over at least a couple of weeks. You've got on Easter morning, and then you've got uh, a week later, and then we're told we're going to meet up in... Uh, Galilee it's going to take two or three days to walk there we've seen the Lord again this is the resurrection message we have it from Mary to the disciples now we have the disciples to Thomas uh, we've got Thomas's wonderful statement here uh, and again I got to do a little defense of, of the Thomas here uh, Mary Magdalene uh, gets a bad rap Thomas has traditionally got a bad rap doubting Thomas is that a compliment no traditionally it's not traditionally uh Thomas takes a hit because he simply couldn't believe unless. And he's kind of looked down on in, in Christian tradition. And many a sermon preached on that. Now, if what's interesting is if you read the story itself, there's none of that in there. Does Jesus critique Thomas? Criticizing? Say anything negative to him? Quite the contrary. Does Jesus give Thomas every single dad-blasted thing he wanted? Yeah, Exactly. And that that's puts an interesting so you know, it's, it's the opposite of what we traditionally have thought. Uh, second appearance, basically, Thomas's issue apparently was, I was not there, 
you believe because you saw and you experienced. I was not there. I did not see. I did not experience. I would like to have what you guys had. Maybe a little more. <laughs> you know, maybe a little more. Uh, but I at least wanted that. And the story then recreates what happened the week before down to the exact greeting that Jesus gives. Everything. Item by item. Check it off. All there. One, two, three. Everything he asked for. In the story itself, there's not a hint of criticism. Uh, Jesus simply offers Thomas everything that he said he needed in order to believe. And the result then is the most profound and powerful affirmation of faith that we have in John and probably within the New Testament, my Lord and my God. And again, uh, multiple times in the Gospel of John, the point is made that, uh, that Jesus is in fact God made flesh. Uh, remember John 1.1? 1, 1? The beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Uh, your handout has a few more. I edited it down, but then 14. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Yeah. You see Jesus, you've seen God. So that connection is clearly made. Thomas's profession is the high point of the Gospel of John. Everything kind of leads up to this. Mary of, uh, of uh, Mary and Martha has a profound discussion with him. Mary Magdalene has some very pointed things to say. But he, Thomas is the only one to make this affirmation. Uh, Mary comes close. She calls Jesus Lord. But not God, which is where he goes. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Again, it is a beatitude. Um, the disciples and Thomas were there in that first generation. They were able to see. They were able to experience. John's audience is not as privileged, and they live in a different time, as do we. And the point of the Beatitudes seems to be that seeing is not a prerequisite for faith. Because if it was, there would be no faith after the first generation. Because we simply were not there, did not experience that. We are blessed if we can believe without having actually seen the risen Lord. And it appears real clearly that the original Gospel of John ended right here at this point. Chapter 20 even has a conclusion of the Gospel as a whole. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Does that sound like a conclusion to you? Yeah. Wrap it up, tie a bow in it, you know. John has done what he attempted to do. That in through believing, you may have life in his name. John's audience, again, not able to witness the resurrection. But what do they have? They have the testimony of others, including this disciple whom Jesus loved, who apparently was an eyewitness. Uh, you've got the testimony of the gospel of John itself. So John ends originally with Mary Magdalene, the disciples without Thomas, the disciples with Thomas, and an invitation to believe, not because you yourself have personally seen it, but because that testimony has been given to you. And again, it probably ended there. Now, your, gospel, your uh, Bible does not end there, does it? If you have a good study Bible, there's going to be a little footnote there that's going to tell you that John probably... Interesting thing is, we don't have a single manuscript of John without chapter 21. And we've got manuscripts from the second century. So if this is added to John, it's added very, very quickly, and we think by the same author because the language is the same. We're going to look at that in just a second. 
uh, it has an entirely different ending, an entirely different purpose. What it looks like is that John wrote the gospel and it was used for a while, but at some point there came a need to do something a little different. We're going to add a chapter to John to do something that is not done in John 1 through 20. It was something different. Do you remember offhand what the focus, focus of 21 is? Who the big character is? Peter. Okay, disciple of Jesus. Where did we leave Peter before? Remember denying Jesus three times? Okay, we left Peter in a very, very bad place. So, chapter 21 contains a fourth appearance and a very significant con uh, con uh, conversation between Jesus and Peter. It's not that Peter sees Jesus by himself. He's with the disciples when Jesus appears to all, but then Jesus pulls him aside and has this conversation with him. John 21. After these things, after this, the Easter day and one week later stories of chapter 20, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples, this time at the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee, up north. Uh, he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were, it's not the 12, this is John. Simon Peter, is he one of the 12? He is. Thomas called the twin, one of the 12. Nathaniel of Cana, not one of the 12. Not listed in any group of 12. He's just another disciple. Sons of Zebedee, who are? Yeah, John, James, they are. Uh, yeah. And then the two other disciples. Wouldn't you love to know who those other two were? Can you think of two who actually lived up there, <coughs> came from Bethsaida, brothers? Philip and Andrew. That's a guess. We don't know. But Philip and Andrew had very good reason to go back north. They're from Bethsaida. They've been living in Capernaum. Uh, they were in this area. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, that's a loaded statement. <laughs> what did Jesus told Peter earlier he would be fishing for? So this it could be literal fishing, it could be metaphorical fishing, it could be multiple levels of fishing. I'd go with multiple levels. They said to him, okay, we'll go with you, we're in. They went out to got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. They're fishing at night. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. That sound familiar? Uh, Luke, the Emmaus story, multiple stories. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? Well, their boat's pretty high in the water at this point. They answered him, no. He said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. They cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, sound familiar? Key character only in one gospel, the gospel of John. This is one of the arguments why John 21 probably is written by the author of John 20 because the, the disciple whom Jesus loved only appears in the Johannine literature. He said, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes where he was naked. Now, that just raises all <laughs> kinds of questions. <laughs> I'm not going there, okay. Uh, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came to the boat, dragging a net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about 100 yards off. Again, a lot of detail here. Yeah. And they had uh, gone ashore. They saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Who do you think's cooking? In Luke, Jesus eats. 
and John, Jesus cooks. Okay, <laughs> take that, Luke. We're all one up on you. Jesus said, then bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153. Does that sound very specific? <laughs> Lots of ink spilled for centuries. Short version. We have no idea. It probably meant something to John, and it meant something to John's community. 153 probably had a reference. But what you'll find there is people try to give these allegorical interpretations to it, which means they have no idea, and they just try to dump something on top. But we don't know. Uh, one thing is, 153, how many of y'all been to Galilee? You ever seen the Peter fish? 153 of them are not going to bust anybody's net, unless it's one of those little nets. You know, they're about like that, and there's not any meat on them at all. They're ugly, and they're, never mind. If you ever get there, just don't eat them, okay? Though there were so many, the, the net was not torn. I personally am not surprised the net was torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord, even though they don't recognize him. Uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved is already says Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. Whoa, remind you of something? What's it remind you of? Feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, probably happened about 300 yards from this spot. Okay. If he's on the eastern side, John didn't tell us, but the eastern side, very near Bethsaida, is where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. This is somewhere in that same area. Uh, is this John's reference to that? We don't know. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples. It's the fourth appearance. Three to the disciples, and what's the fourth? Mary Magdalene's, okay, after he was raised from the dead. Now, John and Luke have a lot of things in common. This is another one of those stories where it just strikes you how much they have in common. In Luke 5, there is a story in Galilee. Disciples are fishing. They're not catching anything. Jesus comes to them pre-resurrection, pre tells them cast their nets over on the side. They cast their nets over on the side, haul in a bunch of fish. Sound vaguely familiar? So one of the questions that scholars ask is, is this two versions of the same story? Has Luke taken the resurrection story and just used it earlier in his gospel? Or, in fact, are there two different? They're a little different, but they're close enough that it's pretty striking. We again get this disciple whom Jesus loved, and he's an interesting character. Uh, he's been reintroduced again, and he's the first to recognize who Jesus is. You remember the empty tomb story? He's the guy who figures out what's going on with a napkin. Peter's a little slow, uh, physically and mentally. Uh, now he recognizes Jesus and the abundance of the cats. And again, Peter's still not caught on. Uh, and again, many people think that this reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved makes it likely that this addition to John is not written by somebody else. It's the same author who basically is revising the manuscript, adding some more in. Uh, what it appears like is that the reason that chapter 21 is there and the reason the story is there is it's going to set up this conversation because this is the real power of chapter 21. Verses 15 through 25. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. By the way, have you heard that, those words before? Only in the Gospel of John. This is how Jesus addressed Peter in chapter 1 when he invites Peter to become his disciple. Probably not accidental. Same language. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Might there be a reason to wonder about Peter's love? 
post denials. Yes. Okay. Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, got that out of the way. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Now, that's interesting. In Matthew, what does Peter become? Comes the first pope. Power and authority to hold sins and forgive them, to bind and release. In John, what is Peter's job? Shepherd. It's not a position of power authority. Take care of people. Good chance that's not accidental, by the way. Second time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? I thought we already cleared the table with that one. <laughs> Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, Jesus has probably already figured out that Peter's a little slow and needs some positive reinforcement here. Okay. <laughs> Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, recalling the language of when Jesus called him to be a disciple in chapter 1. Do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said for him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter, what is your role? What is your job? Take care of the flock. Take care of people. This is being said at a time in the 90s A.D., when the monarchical bishop is an emerging trend in the, in the Christian church. And these bishops are having authority. Ignatius of Antioch being one of them that we know about who have writings. That you are to treat the bishop as though the bishop were God in your congregation. Now, in that environment, if you read this, you get a message. Peter, what's your job? Not to lord it over people, but to take care of people. Very truly, I tell you, and then Jesus continues. When you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. This is the image. Does it remind you of anything? Okay. It's exactly what John has in mind. And someone else will fasten the belt around you. They're going to bind you. And they're going to take you where you do not wish to go. Probably physically and otherwise. Okay. And then John, just to make sure in case we're a little dense that morning and might not be reading real close, John, a little parenthetical statement just to, so we're real clear. He said this, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, based on this story, how do you think Peter's going to die? Crucifixion. According to Christian tradition, he dies by crucifixion. Paul gets his head cut off. Peter dies by crucifixion. After this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Now, what is that? An invitation to discipleship. Peter, here's your job. I'm addressing you by the same words I addressed you when I called you the first time. Yes, you denied me three times. We got that behind us. Okay, you professed your love for me three times. By the way, are you ready to be my disciple again? What's the purpose of chapter 21? Think about it to reinstate Peter as a disciple of Jesus Christ in good standing, which is exactly what it does. Simon, son of John, again, is what we have in chapter 1, the very first words that he said to Peter. Uh, then we have Peter denying him three times, which John includes in this gospel. P 
Peter then gets a chance to profess his love for Jesus three times. By the way, the balance of three and three, I'm thinking it's probably not coincidental. Deny three times, affirm three times, one wipes out the other. Jesus then welcomes Peter back into the fold by the same address, and Jesus reinforces it by initiating the, the call again to follow me. So this seems very important. Now, we have this strange language, stretch out your hands, the kind of death by which he would glorify you. Are we told anywhere in the New Testament how Peter died? This is as close as we get. Okay. Uh, Peter, tradition says, probably died in the persecutions of Nero in Rome, side by side with Paul in the year 64 AD, while Nero was fiddling, and Rome burned, and then he had to blame somebody. Uh, the truth of the matter is, Nero wanted to build a new palace, and so he needed an urban renewal project. <laughs> and how do you do that? A little fire goes a long way. Okay. Uh, and by the way, th the Romans figured this out real quick. P uh, Nero got his own a little later. Uh, John appears to know a tradition, a story of how Peter died by crucifixion, his hands stretched out. Uh, now, this is a history test. How many of you remember movies from the 50s and 60s? How many of you have seen Quo Vadis? Okay. Quo, Quo Vadis, Lord, where are you going? In Latin, you know. This is the Quo Vadis story. It's not in our Bible, uh, but it is found in an early Christian document, one of the earliest. It is called the Acts of Peter. Now, there's several documents by Peter. I thought you might kind of enjoy this. As Peter left the city, the, the back story is Peter's gone to Rome. He's there with Paul. He's just found out that if he stays, he's going to be killed because he's the leader in the Christian community. Peter, being kind of like uh, Jonah, decides it's a good time to get out of Dodge. Okay. So he's hiking out of the town. This is the Quo Vadis story. And he's just made his getaway. He's left town. He's on the Roman road. Uh, and then he's going to see Jesus appear. Uh, and he's going to ask Jesus this question. Uh, Peter left the city. He saw the Lord entering into Rome. So he sees Jesus walking into Rome, which would be a strange thing in the year 64. When he saw him, he asked, Lord, where are you going? Quo Vadis, where are you going? And the Lord said, I'm going to Rome to be crucified. That hurt. Peter asked, Lord, are you being crucified again? Jesus answered, yes, Peter, I'm being crucified again. Why would Jesus be crucified again? Because Peter's not. So Jesus has got to take Peter's place. Okay. Peter came to himself, realized what's going on. He returned to Rome, and in language <laughs> of the second century, rejoicing and glorifying in God, saying, I'm going to be crucified. Yeah. It's interesting. We have Ignatius of Antioch, who in about the year 110, right after John, says, and this is a historical document, says exactly the same thing. I'm going, writes to the church at Rome, says, I'm, I'm coming to be killed for my faith. Do not interfere. Let the lions tear at me. Bring on the tigers. Bring on the bears. Let them wrap me. Turn me into human torch. All that stuff that, that Nero did, you know, because this is how I'm going to get to God. The same kind of thinking here. Now, a little later in the story, uh, by the way, it's a long-winded book, so I'm going to cut it down for you. He said uh, to his executioners, I beseech you, the executioners, crucify me in this way with my head downward and not the other way. And they hung him upside down after the manner he desired. Now, from tradition, why did he ask for that? Do you remember? What? Yeah, that's the traditional deal, that he felt unworthy. Jesus was crucified up, so he's not <laughs> worthy to be crucified up. The actual book does not say it at all. Uh, what, what Peter actually says in the book is, 
The world is topsy-turvy. The world is turned upside down. Right is wrong, wrong is right, nothing's the way it should be. So it's the only way the world's going to look right if you invert me. And it's kind of a, a kind of a philosophical deal. And with that, the story of Peter comes to an end. Now, we've done Ma- Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. What have we missed? Well, we've missed uh, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, who has a list, including some appearances we've not seen, including appearances to 500 people at one time. We have an alternate ending to Mark. We actually have four alternate endings of Mark. So I thought you might appreciate those, and we kind of take a look at those. And then I thought we might end with, if you look at the, the resurrection stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, what is the resurrection thing? What is the, the content that we're being asked to believe in there? Sound like fun? And with that, Easter will come to an end, and we'll move on to the Sermon on the Mount. Would you stand for number 697? Is this the same one? 697, my country tis of thee. This is different. Yes. Yes. Which you may have already sung twice today, but we'll just sing it again. How many times a year do you sing it? That's right. About once. My country tis of thee, (laughs) land of liberty, of thee I see. Just a quick reminder that we probably do have a few extra lunches, so if you would like to join us today, we invite you to do so. Would you receive this benediction? And now may the love of God, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you this day and the days to come. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. I just want to say it was good to have you back. Thank you.